Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hello, friends. This is Engage 360 from Denver Seminary. We're glad you've chosen to spend a little time with us again. My name is Don Payne, your host, and encouraged to bring before you a really, I think, uh, encouraging and intriguing conversation today. Since the 2008 economic disaster, I've had the growing impression that the future of pastoral ministry may be increasingly bivocational. Uh, At the very least, we see constant creativity in the expressions of church and and the pastoral ministry that supports it. And I, I expect that traditional forms of church and pastoring will probably be with us for a long time to come, but with the array of changes in both cultures and economies, pastoral leadership needs to be increasingly nimble and adaptive. What continues to excite me about Denver Seminary is that we have students preparing for and serving in both traditional and non-traditional forms of ministry, particularly pastoral ministry. So we get to draw upon the historic models and at the same time adapt the wisdom in those models in ways that bring the gospel to people whose lives and journeys and questions place them sort of in the cracks or outside the lines of where traditional ministry uh, forms aim their efforts. And our guest today has been working away quite effectively at both uh, bivocational pastoral ministry and I think at a fairly creative form of church life. Uh, And I want you to hear about uh, that journey, what he's learned and how that might prompt some creative, courageous ministry thinking in your setting, whatever that setting is. So my friend David Swenson uh, co-pastors a vibrant community of Christians called Coramdeo in the vicinity of the University of Denver, and their group has actually started dozens of house churches. I think dozens is fair to say. David, well, by the way, welcome. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> really, really glad you could spend some time with us. Um, so I think you've started dozens of house churches in the area, uh, and David and his uh, co-pastor, Matt Hulst, also started and continue to run a tutoring company called Thrive Tutoring. Yep, that's it. Uh, they hire lots of Denver Seminary students as tutors, so the benefits of their approach are quite broad. Um, David has a background in physics and math and completed an MA in theology here at Denver Seminary a few years ago. And his wife, Katie, also completed an MA in counseling here. Uh, and I, I know you, and I think this is true of Matt as well, have a background with uh, YWAM in Hawaii. Yeah, that's great. Were you both yeah. in Hawaii? Yeah, I mean, you're never quite in one place for a long time with YWAM, but I'd say YWAM Kona was our home base okay. for most of it. Okay, okay. Well, first, David, tell us uh, a bit about your church community, how it got started, how it works, etc. Oh boy, that's a dangerously open-ended question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll try and be as brief as I can. Uh, I mean, the community really started by Matt and Tanya years before, a couple years before we even got here. And Matt and Ton were kind of living out this, Matt likes to call it a missionary-ish lifestyle, where the lines are blurred between traditional paid ministry and, like we're talking about today, bivocational kind of roles. And and Matt had, as you just 
implied about a decade of experience working all over the world with YWAM and I think brought with him when he moved back stateside and settled down, got married. He started teaching in some schools here in Denver for income or bivocational income. And he really just couldn't shake that missionary identity that had been so imprinted on him in his 20s. And I think there's lots of people out there who have these pretty formational leadership experiences with parachurch organizations. Yeah. And inherently, there's a impulse embedded in those organizations where missiology is at the forefront. And ecclesiology is kind of the caboose that you figure out at the end. Right, and it's right. sometimes a little underdeveloped, uh, maybe even in a negative way. But at the very least, the order is really clear. Ecclesiology trails missiology rather than in local church contexts, even if at the beginning of a church plant, missiology is at the forefront. After a generation or two of people have cycled through, now ecclesiology is kind of the thing. And the structures and systems that have been passed on become the thing. Yeah. So, yeah, Matt and Ton in some sense, I would say, accidentally started a church because they were just trying to reach college students and create a space for them, you know, especially college students who wouldn't show up to a even a really healthy, traditional, Sunday-centric American church. Okay. So after a couple of years of doing that, they started to realize that they needed a team and needed help. So they kind of prayerfully sent out an invite to a handful of friends, and Katie and I were lucky to be on the list, and uh, we were in a time of transition. We, were, we had been working in YWAM about six years, directing uh, discipleship training schools, their kind of six-month intensive program, and we were contemplating a move long-term overseas, and we were quite honestly sitting in Nepal one night and discussing options and praying through options, and my wife threw out this idea of moving here to attend Denver Seminary and get her counseling degree. And I somewhat sarcastically, um, yeah, I was pretty resistant to even entertaining the idea. And the next morning we woke up after kind of praying, going to bed, and Matt sent this invite for us to move here and church plant with them. So my wife is far more discerning and wise than I am. So that was really the impetus of it. And and again, like I said, we didn't have a master plan playbook. We didn't have a denominational backing. We didn't have a sending church. We very quickly in the process of planting a community knew that we wanted to be kind of connected. And so we had deep friendship and relationship with a network of communities associated with actually a prayer movement called 24-7 Prayer, mm -hmm. based out of the UK. They have a pretty broad network in the US as well. And uh, so we just kind of hitched our wagon up with them. And they're, again, like you're even alluding to, there's a lot of these thinking outside the box from traditional denominational lines. And I'd say 24-7 Prayer gathers communities on more value basis than even theological doctrinal basis. So the tent pegs are pretty wide for yeah. some of that, but it's more value centric and trying to integrate certain values that have been held by many denominations in church history. So things like the charismatic, uh, the contemplative, social justice. So how do we, how do we gather communities who are like-minded in trying to integrate those values rather than just, you know, unilateral, confessional belief in all these doctrines alone. And obviously doctrine does come into play inevitably, uh, 
but it doesn't maybe take the leading leading role. Tell uh, tell us a little bit about how Coromdeo uh, functions. You have kind of a centralized group, but you really put a lot of your energy into the house churches. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And on some level, it's complex. And more or less every year, whoever was kind of functioning in a role of core leadership and really functioning as an elder for that year, we would gather and have a pretty long, drawn-out process of discernment and dialogue and reflection on the year before, and then really pray into that year. And stumbling at times, admittedly, we would take our best stab at maybe a redirection we should move in or changes we should make. So some of the structures and models have quite honestly changed six or seven times in about five years. Um, Where we're currently at, well, what has always been true is we've always tried to emphasize that the primary organizing structure for our church is smaller communities, typically that gather in homes. They might they might not even be called house churches. You might call the small groups. You might call the missional community. You know, there's a lot of semantics and kind of churchy lingo, mm-hmm. lingo that we need to define. And um, But at the core, we would just believe that your primary church community should be the number of relationships that you can actually form a true, deep attachment with. And when all of those smaller groups get together— that's actually not church. That's maybe it's a seminar, maybe it's training, maybe it's maybe it's really awesome, maybe it's a big celebration and party. Um, but you're really only living as a organism of the church with people who you can really know their lives and form real relationship with. Okay. So now you mentioned teaching, and I know you do a good bit of teaching in that model, and um, even if even if doctrine is not maybe the most explicit. Uh, lead mm-hmm. in in the presentation. I right. mean, you've got an MA in theology and yeah, yeah. are richly, vigorously theologically minded, and I know you do a lot of teaching. So yeah. tell us how that functions. Yeah, similarly, there have been some different iterations over the years. Um, so there are times where we have gathered every other week corporately with all these smaller communities. And there have been seasons where we didn't gather at all for upwards of five or six months corporately. And people were only gathering in homes on a weekly basis during that period. So it's ebbed and flowed a lot. When we hold public gatherings, there is always a component of teaching or training. And sometimes that's more expository or kind of narrative theology pulling from Scripture. Sometimes it's more extra-biblical, theological, or you know, maybe we're teaching on spiritual disciplines or okay. uh, rule of life, things that are have proved very effective and fruitful in the life and history of the church, but aren't inherently, you know, chapter verse preaching sermons like mm-hmm. is kind of the traditional norm in Protestant churches. So, yeah, I definitely have held a central role as probably one of the primary teachers along with Matt. And then we've also, as a part of our built-in leadership development models where we're continually trying to provide opportunities and training to develop other people's leadership giftings, we do try to share that space a lot. So, I mean, the the simple reality is as much as I probably could just give long monologues and long trainings and sermons, um, many years I might only be giving 10 sermons in an entire year, maybe less. And I have run 
learning labs or cohorts where maybe I even record teachings just for that cohort. Okay. Uh, and we might post that digitally on our website or on our podcast or things like that. So your, your teaching takes a number of different forms. It's Absolutely. not just one, one right. set predictable right. delivery modality. Right. Yeah, definitely not. And, and even the distinguishment between more of a workshop environment where you're kind of training and interacting with the group or, yeah. or a cohort space versus a traditional monologue of, you know, a delivered sermon preaching teaching publicly. Do you still, what, what's the primary constituency? Do you still have a lot of university students or young adults primarily? What, what's your demographic? Yeah, it's definitely ebbed and flowed over the years and a lot of factors have played into that. But I mean, in this current season, we're on some, on some metrics, it feels like a really small community. I think, I think nationally in America, we're probably right at the average size of an American church of around 80 people. Uh, and that's not even really counting kids. So in terms of how it feels, it feels like a pretty small community, but obviously there've been seasonality to that, especially in a city like Denver where people come and are apart maybe for a few years and then jobs are, life stage takes them out. Fair bit of turnover. Yeah, fair bit. But there's there's a common core of probably 30 to 35 of us who have really held the DNA of the community over the last three, four years. And increasingly, our demographic is young, some young families, and then kind of singles, working professionals. So we have a handful of people with gray hair in the community, and increasingly a lot of littles under 10. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we would, we'd love to see it long-term continue to grow and then diversity of even generationally there. But so what, what keeps you at this form of ministry? Why, why would you hmm. commend this yeah. to other people to think about ministry this way? Oh, wow. The first thought that comes to my head, I was... So, so well, let me give a little couple comments on context. So really, especially in this last year, Matt and I have shifted a lot of our time and energy to developing and organizing what we'd call leadership pathway for our community. And increasingly, as we look to the next few years, we see that our primary role for this kind of odd church is to steward the development of leaders and then release them into whatever sense of calling uh, the Lord is speaking to them. So rather than trying to program things from the top down for our community, trying to really seed dreams and ideas from underneath and then get behind people and support them in creating those things. And some of those may not fall under the umbrella of official ministerial communities or church plants or things like that. They might be businesses or entrepreneurship ideas. or um, And then we do hope to cultivate very explicitly and specifically the multiplication of healthy, diverse communities uh, that some people might call house churches, some people might call them missional communities, micro churches. There's a lot of different words for it. But I think with that context, um, I think the part that I love about what we've created for all of its flaws and stumbling along the way is there isn't a single thing we do that I don't believe in, that I don't believe is meaningful, valuable, 
that I wouldn't do for free, to be honest. And I just think that's increasingly the older I get and the more relationships with people in different forms of ministry. Uh, and I say this with all humility, but the more rare I feel like that is. I encounter people who consistently feel like their time and energy and resources is being absorbed and soaked up by things they at best call a necessary, uh, a necessary um, you know, evil or something. It's just a collateral effect of the bigger good thing they believe in, but okay. now you okay. know they have to do this. And obviously, we all have to do things that we don't love. We mow the lawn. We uh, take out the trash. We, we all have to. There's an element of being a responsible adult uh, where we do things we don't want to sometimes. But um, I think I, I just – I was driving up to a pastor's retreat uh, back in December, and I was listening to a talk by – a guy who's been uh, – he's kind of a friend for me. He's a close friend and mentor for Matt, but his name's Hugh Holter. He is a pretty, pretty well-known voice and has authored a handful of books kind of in the missional church movement, yeah. which, know you know, you. for many people was maybe a flash in the pot. It was kind of a cool thing to talk about for a few years, and it's, it's fizzled off the radar. We're not talking about it anymore. But I'm listening to this interview by a guy named Brian Sanders down at the Tampa Underground of Hugh Holter. And Hugh's just talking about his life. He's talking about this journey of 40 years of bivocational ministry. He's talking about the ups and the downs, the, the seasons of scarcity and fear, the seasons of provision and joy. And, and I just start weeping in my truck driving up to this retreat. Um, and I, I just, I, I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude that I feel like some a handful of relationships and people showed me a way to do ministry where I feel like I haven't had to sacrifice like my integrity and purity of oh, heart. Huh. And that's wonderful to hear. And it just feels like such a gift. Um, and and I can say that <laughs> I w- if I had heard the podcast a year ago, I probably wouldn't have cried um, because the last five years of building a business while planting a community, while figuring out all the complexities with that has at times not been very fun. Or at times I've wondered, am I crazy? Is this ever going to work? Should I, have, should I have become a biomedical engineer like I was planning to 14 years ago, you know? And so doubts and seasons of, again, not hardship with a capital H, but for sure, seasons of wondering, is this even possible? Does this work? Is okay. this a good idea for anyone to do? And I think really last fall was kind of a culminating factor of a handful of tributaries kind of forming together in one river where I can say wholeheartedly, um, I'm, I'm in love with what I do. I can't believe that I've fallen into this lifestyle yeah. of ministry by vocation. Oh, I love so, hearing that. Yeah. How, how have you seen God work in people's lives in ways that might be unique to this model of church? I mean, because you mentioned a little bit earlier on that, uh, that early on, um, you know, a lot of folks were, were showing up who might not have shown up in even a healthy traditional church. Sure. What what, what have you seen God do that seems to be unique to this model? Yeah, that's a good question. One of the first things that comes to my mind is, I think the longer we do this, the greater sense of humility I feel and the greater 
I think the more acutely I feel aware that we need diversity in the church because people's discipleship journeys through different life stages are inherently diverse and complex. And I think the more we see the diversity of model and structure and, you know, worship style and organs versus electric guitars and fog machines versus living room worship, the more we embrace that diversity, really what we're doing is framing it positively to see that we can reach more people of different temperaments, personalities, preferences, and in more stages of life and development. And yeah, I mean, I think our community has always been diverse, but there have been a few kind of themes, you might say, that pop up in people's stories who stumble into our community. And um, I think there's a handful who have never been involved in a traditional church at all. And and I think what we're doing feels unexpected and authentic and, you know, taps into some of these kind of classic millennial values, which that's why that has been a people group that I think have been drawn to this. And and I think there's been a whole group of people who honestly are really high-level gifted leaders who gave their 20s to these more organizational traditional models. And they left it on the other side feeling a little disillusioned or questioning what it was all for or what it was all worth and mm. looking around wondering where are the real relationships and attachments that actually – you know, what was that for? What, Other than serving someone else's big organizational vision statement and mission. And now, again, even if nothing, nothing, let's assume no, nothing traumatic or negative or manipulative or coercive or really damaging even happened, but they get to the other side and feel like, what was that for? And, and obviously, okay. I think there can be some healthy reframing of some of that. And there's a of course, lots of positives that they can be coached to see and draw out. But um, so, yeah, I think I think that those are two of the biggest themes we've seen. And I think part of what seems to be really exciting when it starts to click for people is what we're inviting them into is an entirely new way to live and to understand their family and their job and their vocation and in some ways, you know, karam deo, this kind of nerdy old Latin phrase that I think I picked up in in Dave Bouchard's uh, church history class or something yeah. here. Um, and then it just stuck with me and ended up, we ended up naming the community after it. But it means before the face of God. And fundamentally, what I think our model, what we are, kind of the sacred cow we are going after fundamentally is the division of secular and sacred which plays right in, hand in glove into the division of laity and professional Christian. And I think inherently we are trying to create a model that from every conscious and subconscious angle is putting the members of this community square in the face of this reality that they are the priesthood of all believers, they are the saints who are to be equipped for the work of ministry, and ministry is not a the professionalization of ministry that's happened in the 20th century in America, I think, is is tragic, where 
pastors see themselves as a professional just like someone might see themselves as a professional accountant or a professional doctor or, you know, and it's it's seen kind of in this really this inherent dualism that separates ministry to the people we pay to do that. And so from top to bottom, front to back, the first day we started meeting as a community till today, I think that is the the core thing we're trying to see transform in people's minds. And then it feels like we just get to step back and see, oh, wow, what's going to happen now that that paradigm shift has happened for them? Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, we I, uh, that's a big thing we go after in this new leadership pathway we've created. We have a 101, a 201, and a 301 cohort. And to go through all of them would probably take you two to three years. And in a sense, I would say that two to three year process, that's our membership class. And we we don't Mm -hmm. even have church membership. We don't call it that. But I would say you're not probably really building the church uh, in Denver, orienting your life around bringing the kingdom of God to bear in your family, your neighborhood, your workplace, your life, uh, until you've grappled really deeply with some of these key theological ideas and paradigms. And again, I kind of poked fun at earlier a de-emphasis on orthodoxy, but again, by that I don't mean a de-emphasis on thinking theologically and reflectively on the story of God. I mean mean a shift from gatekeeping based on doctrine as kind of the front thing that is prioritized uh, rather than paradigms and core values leading the way, and even core practices. Um, Well, you know, it sounds like that that actually could be a staging for a church body to have a more integrated approach between its confessional theology Mm -hmm. and its practiced or lived theology. Yeah, 100%. Uh, Which, uh, and of course, you you and I are both theologians, so we both love theology. I mean, we, we both can nerd out on that no end. Yeah, we need more than a half hour for that. Uh, yeah, we, we, we do. And at the same time, recognize that uh, it's often, there's often a huge gap between uh, any group's stated theology mm-hmm. and their implicit mm-hmm. or enacted, embodied, lived mm-hmm. theology. And sometimes the more, the more emphasis placed on that explicit stated theology, the less attention we play to whether that's actually enacted in our ways of being, yeah. organizationally. Yeah. Even. So yeah. I, yeah, I can I can see how that could be a good good setup for a just a, a more integrated approach between what we believe and how we yeah. actually live. You know, I'm I'm curious, David. What what have you? What are some of the things you and Matt have learned along the way in the years? How many years have you been on the team? We yeah, we started it together. We moved here fall of 2016, and I guess we kind of had a core group of about 12 that met for a while. So we're, we're over five, just over five years okay. of what, formally what, gathering. What are some of the things you've learned along the way? How have things changed? Hmm. I think a big one is, I mean, there's been a lot of personal change just through the vulnerability of trying to start something. Okay, And, you know, when you were talking there about confessional versus embodied or functional versus confessional theology. I think I haven't thought about that comparison in a handful of years, but I think in some ways everything we do is built on the premise of trying to collapse that gap. So 
an example of something we learned that speaks to that very thing is we talk a lot in our 201, which is kind of our leadership development cohort. It's a 12-week cohort that I run. And to enter it, you have to have done the 101, and then you have to have tried leading something, even if it was for like a month or six months, and it totally failed. But you have to have tried to lead something to even, that's the ticket price, to be in the conversation and play. And one of the first things that we hit really hard in the first session is this difference between positional leadership and relational leadership or positional authority and relational Mm -hmm. authority, Mm -hmm. which on some level strikes a chord with me of that idea of confessional versus functional, where it's one thing to be hired into a position or be assigned a role and given a title over of authority over other people where you are carrying a level of responsibility and influence for better or worse on those people's lives. It's a whole different thing for some person relationally to look at you and implicit or explicit know that you have authority in their life because you've really earned it. Because there's such depth and substance and integrity, not that you're a perfect person, but in the trust and relational fabric of that's going on there. And obviously there comes a time and place where we need to organize and we need to give positional authority or give titles and roles because otherwise it's confusing who's doing what and it's going to make a big mess. But I think anytime positional authority outshines or eclipses relational authority, you're going to have big problems. Yeah. And I think we have inherently in this effort to collapse that gap of confessional and functional at every turn, we are continually pushing people, you know, they come to a church often and, and there's a time and place to just say, Hey, you're a small group leader. Good luck. And get your first dose of leadership experience or, Hey, let's hire an intern and give them a title and a role, even though, yeah, they haven't fully earned it. They don't even know these people yet. So there's a time and place for that. But we've really pushed to almost let provenness be demonstrated and shown. And someone comes to us and says, hey, I want to lead a a group. Well, again, in our model, we don't have signups. We don't don't organize all the groups and post them on the website for people to sign up for it. We would, that person who says, hey, I want to lead a group, we'd say, well, who, who in your life do you have impact and influence on? Who looks up to you? Who trusts you? Who have you earned that with? Okay. What's something you could go lead and do with them first? So really, and at some point along the way, yes, maybe we do need to give a position or a role or a title. But we're always pushing people to try and let their functional, the functional reality of what's going on here actually lead and then we'll come in behind it. We'll name it. We'll organize it. We'll structure it. We'll confess it, you know, with our lips and our cognition. But and, – and I just think that's saved us at so many turns from um, elevating people to positional spots before they were ready. Uh, well, it should be no surprise that that sounds remarkably like some of the patterns we see in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of those out, you know, laid out in Paul's letters. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, which sounds kind of obvious when you hear Paul say, like, <laughs> don't appoint someone as a leader until there's, you know, a provenness of whether it's of character. moral character or biblical integrity or uh, pick, your, pick your facet yeah, of right. character and human development. But it's one thing to hear Paul just say that. It's another thing to think through how would that affect 
the way we organize our churches, especially in a modern environment where the church has become so organizationally driven and professionally driven and have HR departments and hiring and firing. You know, it's, it's, it's cultures apart from that environment that Paul was speaking into. Yeah, big time, big time. Well, David, if, um, if people want to learn more either about what you're doing with Cromdeo or about this kind of ministry model, do you have any resources you'd, you'd recommend or places you'd point them to? Ooh. Um, there's a couple that come to mind. There's some dear friends of ours, a guy named uh, John Peterson and Ken Yonke. They run a podcast and have a nonprofit ministry. They're based out of Castle Rock. It's called City Table. Okay. And they are, I think, they're mentors and kind of spiritual dads to me and Matt and I think really have been leading the way of thinking about some of these things for the last few decades. All right. And the other community that I would point people to They've just uh, they've had such a deep impact on me this last year, especially. Uh, they're called the Tampa Underground. They have a beautiful origin story. They've been around close to twenty years now, and they were started by a, about a group of fifty former InterVarsity uh, college campus ministry hmm. people who started a church with kind of some of these same values and ideas that I'm talking about okay. here. And uh, they have a really great, just for, if you just want to feel inspired and get your faith stoked a little, they have a great documentary called Underground People. You can find it on Vimeo. Okay. Yeah. That's great. David Swenson, so good to see you again and catch up and, and hear uh, in, a, in kind of a encapsulated uh, version what, uh, what the Lord's been doing yeah. uh, through you guys. Just so, so thrilled about that. and. And really, really proud of you guys. Thanks for spending time with us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me, Don. Yeah. Friends, this has um, been Engage 360. And need to remind you, I don't do this often enough, that if you want uh, full transcripts of our interviews, those are available on the seminary website, uh, which is denverseminary.edu. And you can simply do the search for or find Engage 360. And if you look at any of the episode links uh, on our website, you'll find full transcripts available there, even if you listen to the podcast on another platform. I would encourage you, as I know everybody says this, but it really does make a difference if you get a chance to give us a rating or review that helps raise the profile and get us us exposure a bit more broadly, because we'd love to serve as many people as we can. Uh, remember also, you can email us, questions, comments, podcast at denverseminary.edu is our email address. And we would love to hear how we can, uh, can serve you in some way. Do visit our website for other resources, denverseminary.edu. Friends, until uh, the next episode, hope that the Lord uh, encourages you and gives you fresh and courageous ministry ideas wherever you are and however you are serving. Take care.